0: If somebody asked you, what is your favorite verse of the Bible, just take a moment and think about what would you say is your favorite verse in the Bible. In fact, why don't we all say our favorite verse out loud together. You ready? One, two, three. Okay. All right. We like all of them, apparently. And indeed, we do. Today, I have the privilege of speaking from what might be my favorite verse in all of the Bible. It certainly is a top five, and I hope when I'm done, it's possibly your favorite verse as well. We've been on a journey uh, through the book of Romans. We've been doing this for well over a year, and we have seen so many wonderful truths, and we've delighted in so many wonderful things, just some of the highlights. Romans 1:16: "The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation." Romans 1:18. The wrath of God is revealed uh, from heaven against all the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by worshiping created things rather than the creator. Romans 3.21, now a righteousness apart from the law has been revealed through faith in Jesus Christ. Yes. Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And with these, we've had many, many other wonderful vistas along the way. Just like, you know, if that one verse was in any other book of the Bible, it would be the best verse in that book. But Romans is just packed with all of these wonderful truths. But yet, in spite of that, if we were to say, what is the summit of Romans? Like, if we're saying Romans is the, is the, the best explanation of the gospel in the whole Bible, and if there's all of these wonderful moments in Romans, what is, what's the Mount Everest Of Romans like what is the peak of all the peaks there is no doubt that it's Romans 8 and in Romans 8 it is likely Romans 8 verses 31 through 38 and so I'm going to read these verses we're not tackling all of these today but I just want you to Christian relish in what God's Word says what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. "Amen." Like it just doesn't get any better than that. And uh, so we're going to be doing, working through these verses into like mid June. And our attention today is on verses 31 and 32. These verses flow out of the massive promises that we've already enjoyed in verses 28 through 30. And the fact that our salvation began in eternity past as God began to think about us in a loving, saving way. And that that salvation worked its way through human history the cross, the resurrection, and Paul talks about our salvation, our future salvation, our glorification in the past tense, meaning that in God's eyes for the Christian, our salvation is a done deal. It's already done. It's already accomplished. What a wonderful truth that is. So both of these verses, verses 31 and 32, which flow out of that, both of them are questions. Both of them are rhetorical questions. And uh, what is a rhetorical question? sort of a joke. It's a question that assumes the answer. It's a question that you don't have to answer uh, because it's obvious what the answer is. And so we have two questions here that he, uh, that he presents to us. And verse 31, the question is, what shall we say to these things? The apostle, this is apostle speak for basically this. It, what does all this mean? What is all the stuff I've been talking about, what does it mean? What is the bottom line? Or what is the bottom line of bottom lines? And from that he moves into this famous statement. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Okay, class, tell me. What is the assumed answer to the question? No one. If God is for you, nobody can stand against you. If it begins here, if God is for us. Don't take this to mean some sort of uncertainty here. Verse 32 addresses the uncertainty. If here is more like since or because God is for us. So the the only question in Romans 8, really a question, is whether I am a Christian or not. Am I justified by faith alone in Jesus or not? Am I an object of God's mercy and grace or not? Am I a Romans 1 through 8 Christian Or not? Am I under the grace of God or the wrath of God? And Romans 1 through 8 has explained all of that. We've been working our way through it. So, the if here, take the if here to be because God is for you, since God is for you, if you're a genuine Christian. And I guess that's sort of the bottom line here. I don't want to give anybody sort of the sense today, man, I'm walking out of here, God's for me, only if you're a Christian. Only if you're a Christian. Does this verse mean that if God is for us, then nobody can ever contend against us? That's not what it's saying either. Because in many ways, to become a Christian is to actually get more people contending against you. To have more things that you are fighting against, significant opposition. I contend against my old nature when I become a Christian. When I become a Christian up to that point, Satan was my master. Now he's my enemy. He contends against me. The whole world's superstructure of values and what's important. Now, before becoming a Christian, I was just kind of the, the dead fish going down the river with all of that. Now I'm contending against it, and it's contending against me. So don't think that becoming a Christian means that nobody stands against you and it's just sort of like, you know, this is easy street. I've got no problems at all. So this is not saying that. What is it saying? Here's what it's saying. That our relationship with God is one where God is exerting his divine power unto salvation in our lives. And with that divine power and promise of God exerting its full effect in our life, who ultimately can beat us? Who ultimately can contend against us? Who can stand against us? Not if God is on my side, or better said, not if I'm on God's side. And so the the silent rhetorical answer here is no one can. No one can. Why? Because Christianity, friends, is not God coming over on my side. It is me, by his grace, coming over to his side. And since I am now, as a Christian, on God's side, and all of the guarantees that God has made regarding you know, his promises and the future and glory and all of that, since I am now on his side, I am part of the victory that he is going to accomplish. So it's not that our enemies can't stand against us. They can and they will. And some of you had a week like that. It's just that when you add God to the equation of our lives and our eternities, now we can't lose. We, we can't ultimately lose. So i got trying to think of a, a good analogy of this. and my mind, as many of you know, I, I'm a sports guy, and so my mind went to a sports analogy. And uh, so forgive me if you're not into sports, but this is where my mind goes, to try to illustrate this. And this doesn't do it justice. But you've, maybe you've seen the uh, Pepsi commercials with Uncle Drew. Are you familiar with Uncle Drew? So if you watch these, you can watch them online if you want to. Uncle Drew is this old guy, like, you know, gray, hunched over, kind of a, you know, bigger belly on him, and uh, walks, you know, like an old man. And uh, it tells the story of Uncle Drew who goes to this, you know, urban uh, park where there's all these guys, young guys, vibrant guys, strong guys, they're all playing basketball. And he kind of stands around the court, you know, hoping to play, but nobody's picking him. And uh, finally, a guy gets hurt, and they say, well, you know, Uncle Drew, why don't you come in and play? And so he kind of shuffles in to play, and uh, in fact, I think we have a picture of what he looks like. I asked him to, so there's Uncle Drew, okay? He shuffles in to play, and everyone's like, you know, sort of smirking about this, you know, old guy playing. And... uh, not very long into the game, all of a sudden, Uncle Drew, he's behind his back, you know, he's, uh, he's hitting threes, you know, he's blocking shots, he's going up and doing like this, you know, reverse dunking, and like the whole place is just like astounded that this old guy could possibly play like that. Of course, his team wins and, and all of that, and, and uh, if you've seen it, you know Uncle Drew is actually all-star Kyrie Irving in disguise as Uncle Drew and uh, He just like turns it on and you see what what an NBA all-star versus even a good, you know a good basketball player the difference between those two because he is just dominating Okay, so that's the Pepsi commercial. Let me push this a step further Let's say that Uncle Drew doesn't go to the uh, urban playground. He goes to uh, the elementary school recess And he gets picked on a team. Let me push it a little further. It's not just elementary school recess playground. It's recess at an all-girls school. Let me push it a little further. And let's just say it was the recess at the all-girls elementary school for the chess club. And now you got Uncle Drew on your team. What are the chances that you lose if Uncle Drew's on your team. It's just not going to happen. It, it basically can't happen. Why? Because I got Uncle Drew on my, on my team. You know where I'm going with this. Our victories, friends, over the world, the flesh, and the devil are no indication of our awesomeness. We can look back in our life and say, Man, I nailed it there, and I did this here, and I was so good there. Okay? Okay? How do we win eternally? We win eternally because God is eternally for us. We are eternally on his team. And with that power that God alone has exerting itself in favor towards us, not wrath but in favor towards us. Now Romans 8:28, God's working everything for good for those who love God, called according to his purpose. Now those that he predestined, he also called and justified and glorified. And a host of other things that we can know confidently are going to happen, not because of us. We're the girls on the chess team. We are not ourselves able to stand against the world of flesh and the devil. You know yourself. If you knew me, I'm weak too. We fall so easily. We're not going to make it because Because of us, we make it because now, standing behind us, the promises of God and the power of God, exerting his divine will in our life, this text tells us we can't lose. We will never lose. Why? Because we're on God's team. We're on God's side. God is for me. Now, listen. If you just opened your Bible and read Romans 8, you would think, well, that's a really great promise. But you know where it really becomes astonishing is when you start in Romans 1. Because we did not start in Romans 1 in the favor of God. We started in Romans 1 under the wrath of God. This is no small thing that we find ourselves with God for us. Because we are naturally in ourselves set against God. We are sinners we are rebels against God. And indeed, God is angry at mankind. Imagine with me the terror of standing before Almighty God and for to see that glory and that power and to sense in my heart, He is not for me. To realize that I am standing before Almighty God and He is against me. And that there is now no way for me to to change that. He is eternally against me. That is the wrath of God. God is not only against the sinner someday, but he stands against the sinner even today. Sinners experience common grace, and so they do Mother's Day, and they have flowers, and they have a nice lunch, and they have friendship and all of that, but do not take the rain falling from heaven and the sun coming up to mean that God is for you. Everybody experiences the common grace of God. Romans tells us that God is merely storing up his wrath against us, piling it up and waiting for the day where his justice will be exerted to every sinner not under his grace. And so we could read it this way. If God is against you, who can be for you? If God is against you, who can be for you? Someday it will not matter, friend, who you were. It will not matter how beautiful you were, how in shape you were, how rich you were, how famous you were, how successful you were. It will not matter how powerful you were. If God is against you, who can be for you? Pile all your friends and all your neighbors and all your stuff, and you set that against Almighty God, what good does it? He is God Almighty. And so the the underlying honestly, scary reality here is if God is not for me, (laughs) whoa. And that's not just for today, that's forever. In the words of Jesus, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his own soul? And so this verse, it cuts both ways. It cuts both ways. And ask the question, which side are you on? Is God for me or is God against me? Because if God is for me, then, as we often sing, no power of hell nor scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. If God is for us, friends, nobody can be against us. And that is a fantastic verse, but it's not my favorite verse. Verse 32 is my... Favorite verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This verse is so rich, I just don't want to mess it up. I just want to tell you what it means and just let it speak to us. It begins here with a statement of fact upon which the argument is made from the greater to the lesser. So if the greater thing is true, if the harder thing is true, then the lesser or the easier thing must also be true. So what is the harder thing or the greater truth? It's the first part of the verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Part of why I love this is I love Trinitarian theology and we see a Trinitarian salvation narrative at work here and there's many places in the Bible that do that. John three sixteen does that, but it certainly does it here. It could have said, God did not spare God. But what it says is Trinitarian relationship, he who did not spare his son. You see that? It's explaining the relationships within the Godhead. So the he here is God the Father, did not spare his own son. There's the second person of the Trinity, human name Jesus But he goes deeper into this, okay? He did not spare his own son. Uh, God the Father did not spare God the Son. Now what does spare mean there? Okay, spare means to spare him what he did to bring about our salvation. God did not spare it. Let's just say that God had spared the Son. How is the story different if God spared the Son? Well, we go back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sin against God. God doesn't come and say, to Satan, you'll, you know, uh, you'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says to Adam and Eve, you're going to die, and you're going to be dead forever. It. Your Bible is like this long. You go from Genesis, all of a sudden the next book of the Bible is Revelation and judgment. And God the Father has every right to condemn every single sinner to an eternal damnation. to That would be justice for God. He, nobody could say, you didn't do me right or this one shouldn't be that way. He would be giving us exactly what we deserve if God had not spared or had spared his son. Imagine that Bible a moment, how different our lives would be. It would have meant sparing Jesus the cross. It would have meant sparing Jesus the humiliation. It would have meant sparing Jesus all the things that he went through in order to accomplish our salvation. It would have spared Jesus all of that. But to realize this, that sparing Jesus would have meant that God didn't spare us. Sparing Jesus meant God didn't spare us. What did, God would just give us justice. We would get what we deserve. In order to spare us hell, he had to not spare his son Jesus. And this is the amazing love of God the Father and God the Son. They purposed in eternity past to spare us by not sparing Jesus. It was either going to be one or the other. In fact, we find this even in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's Jesus. He's about to be betrayed. He's about to die on the cross. And there he prays to his heavenly Father. And what does he say? Father, if there is any way for this cup to pass from me, may it be so. Nevertheless, your will be done. There, Jesus, one last time in his humanity, crying out to God the Father and saying, is there any other way to spare humanity hell? Is there any other way that this can be done? And Jesus knew and God the Father knew there was no other way. It was either sparing us or sparing Jesus. And they purposed out of love to spare us and to not spare him. Christians see the mercy of God from this amazing perspective. He gave him up for us all. Did not spare him, but gave him up for us all. There's substitutionary atonement. He died in our place. He gave his life for us. Who's the us here? All those who fit into verse 30. All of us who are justified and will someday be glorified. Verse 28, those who love God called according to his purpose. This is not a universal thing. Where Jesus, God gave the Father up for all of humanity and therefore in the end everybody is saved. No. It is the us there are his people. The us there are those who love him. Friend, is that you today? Gave him up for us all. God sacrificed his son for us. What parent would do that? Here we are on Mother's Day. You know, it's 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 an awful thought to give up a child in such a way. And yet, in some ways, even human parents do this. Moms who say goodbye to their sons who go to war. Moms who say goodbye to their kids who go off to ministry in some faraway place. Get at that same sort of sense of giving up your child. But nobody has done it the way that the Father has. He didn't spare Jesus. He spared us. Now, you might look at that and say, well, I know why God the Father did it. He did it because he looked down at us and he saw how valuable we are. And so underlying this verse is the value of human beings. Wrong. This is not saying something about our value. In fact, whose value is being highlighted here? in fact it's a kind of blasphemy to say that this verse somehow is highlighting our value and it strips the verse of all meaning it doesn't celebrate how valuable we are to god it celebrates that jesus is the most worthy the most infinitely valuable treasure in all the world and that should be true to us but that's not what the verse is saying who is valuing jesus in romans 832 and the answer class is god the father God the Father, valuing Jesus, the worth of Christ, gives the thing that is most valuable to him, most valuable in all the universe. He didn't even spare the most valuable being there is, Christ, and gave him up for us all. Friend, is that your perspective on Jesus today? Do you look at Jesus and say, you know what, of all the things and all the people I've ever known, Jesus is the most valuable, the the greatest treasure. If so, then seeing what God gave up in order to spare us hell suddenly means something. To realize that far beyond all the wealth of the world and all the jewels and all the gold and all the fame and all the power, indeed, Satan offered the kingdoms of the world to Jesus if he would worship him. God gave the single most valuable thing or person that there is. And who did he give it to? Who did he give him to? He gave him to Satan. He gave him to sin. He gave him to Pilate. He gave him to Caiaphas. He gave him to Judas. He gave him to Herod. He gave him to the Romans. He gave him to the Pharisees. But what this verse is telling us is that he gave him to us. He gave him to us, and with that gift, he gave to us Jesus' righteousness. With that gift, he gave to us Jesus' ongoing ministry to us. With that, he gave to us Jesus' cross and atonement. With that, he gave to us this precious gift of knowing Christ that Paul says, I forsake everything else that I might know Christ. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Why? Because when I die, I get more of him. And the Christian's perspective is that Jesus is the most glorious, wonderful thing in all the world, and the Father gave him to me. And if you don't think Jesus is the great gift, then this verse will have no assurance or blessing to you. But if we begin to understand that what God did in salvation is He granted to us the most valuable treasure in all the world, Christ, and knowing Him, well, then now the verse has a sacred, wonderful power for us because the second part of the phrase is this How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? There's a logic here. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. Christ, who is the most valuable gift that anyone could receive if the Father gave him to us. Well, then how can I doubt that he is going to give to me all the other things that are needed and necessary for me to accomplish his will and purpose in my life and for me to end up in heaven and the new earth? How can I question if he gave me Jesus Now, that's summarized by give us all things here, and by this, I don't think we should think that somehow God is gonna give me everything that I want and everything that I need. That's Santa Claus. And there's a reason that immature minds kind of go that direction. That is not what this is saying. What are the all things that God is promising? 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Here's what we can know. God is going to give me everything that I need to accomplish his will and purpose in my life. And if I don't have it, in God's mind, I don't need it. I don't need it. Maybe you're thinking right now about something you don't have in your life that you wish that you did. And you think, I can't be happy if I don't have this thing in my life. Really? Really? Have you thought about what God has given you, Jesus? And do you realize that if he gave you Jesus, the most valuable treasure in all the world, the thing that is needed to take you to heaven, that the same love and concern that the Father has, that he will will give you all the other things as well that are needed and necessary. And if I don't got it, apparently it's not needed. Not needed. God doesn't think I need it. I love this quote, if God gave his best, the Lord Jesus, he will give the least, everything else his children need. If he gave the best, he'll give the rest. That was so good I put it the title of the sermon. <laughs> if he gave his best, he'll give the rest. And that is the point, point. and what a wonderful promise it is. If he gave us Christ, how can we doubt he'll give us everything else that we need as well? And I just think pastorally, This summarizes so much of what my heart for the church and my heart for uh, who we are and our identity. I mean, how often have I said it's all about him? And we think, okay, that's true. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. Amen. But we don't think about the implications of what it means for my heart in life to think that that means something. That for me to have Christ by faith has all of these like byproducts that come along with it. The all things of Romans 8.32. In fact, there's a way here to live on Romans 8.32 and there's a way to make a mess of it. So I want you to honestly ask the question in your heart, which half of Romans 8.32 do you get more excited about? Let me say the verse again. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, first part, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Second part. Which of those two parts Do you get more excited about because there is a way and there are many people who approach Christianity and they're all about the second part of the verse they have in their life something that's not the way that they think it should be and so all of a sudden they get spiritual right they get spiritual so they get a tough medical diagnosis they start to pray. They have a financial hardship, they start going to church. When they need God's help, they start giving money to the church. People get spiritual when they need something from God. And then, of course, what happens when the crisis passes? What happens to the praying, the giving, and the church attending? (laughs) When the crisis passes, all of a sudden, poof, they're gone. I got what I needed from God. I've got this transactional relationship with God. I pull him out like a little genie whenever I sort of need him. But the rest of my life, I'm sort of going to live the way that I want. I'm more about the all things part of Romans 8.32. Friends, listen, that is not Christianity. That's just plain old manipulative religion that man has practiced down through the centuries. God is a means to an end instead of being the glorious end himself. Friends, real Christianity begins with Christ. It begins with me understanding and seeing in the cross of Jesus the greatest, most massive, wonderful gift that I could ever receive, the most valuable person that has ever lived and lives. God gives to me. He is my possession forever. I'm a co-heir with him. I spend eternity with Jesus. That's the first part of the verse. And when I get that the first part is the, the big thing, and as a joy to me and a treasure to me, now I'm okay with the all things part of this as the byproduct. It is one then the other, not the other in isolation. One of my favorite Spurgeon quotes, I looked at Christ and a dove of peace flew in my heart. I looked at the dove and it flew away. I looked at Christ and a dove of peace flew in my heart. I looked at the dove and it flew away. What does that mean? When my heart and my focus and my attention is upon Jesus and I grasp the treasure that is mine and I relish and rejoice in him when I savor the supremacy of Christ over all things. Now I'm in a posture towards God where I am trusting in him to meet all the other needs of my life. But when I'm just about the needs, when I'm just about what I can get from God, I'm no Christian Christianity begins with C-H-R-I-S-T. It is about him from first to last. There is nobody greater than him. There is no... There is no love like the love of Christ. And Christianity is treasuring him. Not what I get from him. Not the good things that come from him. But him What do we think of a, a girl that marries a guy because she gets, she likes what she gets from that marriage? Gold digger, right? What is her love? It's a self-serving love. It's not a self-giving love. It's a self-serving love. That marriage is all about her. Romans 8.32 is assurance that those who treasure Christ more than anything else, those that come to, to Christianity for Christ's sake and nothing else, that love, that treasuring has as a wonderful lesser byproduct the promise that God is going to meet all of our needs. And so let me ask you this, if If becoming a Christian meant that all you got was Jesus, would you still choose to be a Christian? And if the answer to that is yes, then Romans 8.32 is a promise to live by. Because where do we struggle in life? Okay, Where where are the struggles? Where are the trials that are represented in this room right now? Where do they come? They come in the second part of the verse. It's often the all things part of the verse. Am I going to make it through this trial? Are my needs going to be met? Will God be good to me or to my loved ones? What about my children and their future? What about my grandchildren and their future? What about my marriage that is perpetually hard? What about the diagnosis of the ongoing medical situation and the health needs that I have? And a thousand other things like that. What about on my deathbed? Think of this with me. I want to be a pastor that prepares all of you to die. What are you thinking about if God, in his grace, should allow you to be conscious moments before you die? What are you thinking about? Where where does your fear or faith go? In Romans 8.32, if all of us are thinking Romans 8.32 on the moment before we die, this has been a successful church ministry. Because what do we think? We think if God gave me Christ, if I have Christ, then heaven is mine. If I have Christ, then resurrection is mine. If I have Christ, then new earth is mine. If I have Christ, then I am going to see him with my own eyes. I am going to worship him he is going to minister to me and the greatest thing about forever is not being with my friends and my family and all of that it is that I get to be with him Christ because he's the greatest treasure in all the world but do you see the point of the verse is how can I know that because isn't that where often our fears go like we say okay I believe this but how can I know this to be true and what Paul says, look to the cross. Look to what God the Father gave you on the cross. If God gave you that, how can you wonder if he's going to give you all these other things? If he gave his best, he'll give the rest. And so, friend, please see Christ for who he is. Magnify his, tra- his worth in your heart and mind. You can't over-magnify how valuable he is. Whatever you think he is, he's more than that. Magnify the worth of Christ in your heart and in your life. Live on the the treasure that God has given you in Christ. And then take that incredible, massive gift and look at the little things that life requires and the worries and the wonders and the fears and apply that he gave me this, he'll give me that. That's how we live by faith. The greater we estimate the value of Christ as a gift to us, the more confidence I will have that all the other needs of my life are going to be met. And if I ever wonder about that, if God is for me, who can be against me? If God gave me his best, will he not give me the rest? All praise to him. Amen.